Amen. It's a good word. As is my custom, I want to start with a review and a preview, where we have been and then where we're going. Very fast review to start. Just do you remember that this is written to a group of Jews, Jews that followed after the the, the ordinances, they went to the temple or the synagogue, they brought their sacrifices, they loved their priests, they, they went to the temple, and they followed after the old covenant. They were good, faithful Jews, and then they believed that the, the one they'd always been promised had come, the Messiah had come, and so they stopped following the old ways, and they started following Jesus, and they were under the impression that meant everything's going to be awesome from there. And then they got the, then life hit them. And the temptations were still there, and life was still hard, and the teachings were hard. And so they need to be encouraged, maybe like we do, that you've started to follow Jesus, or you've been following him for a long time, and you have found, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. Life's still hard. Temptation still gets me. Some of the teachings I'm getting are hard. And so this letter, by, by and large, is encouraging. It's encouraging you. Stick with Jesus. Go on. And, and, and why should you stick with Jesus? Well, the theme has been, well, Jesus is better. He's better than anything you left behind, and he's, any, he's better than anything else you could get in this world. Yeah. Just keep going with Jesus. So that's been the theme. That's what we've seen. Now, challenge. Chapter 7, I preached to you in June. It's been a minute since you heard chapter 7. And so he's, his first sentence here in chapter 8 is, now the point we are saying is this. Well, the point he's saying is one you got back in June. So let's assume you don't quite remember it. Let me catch you up on what you just missed. He just spent the entire entirety of chapter 7 talking about this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. And he was making a comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, and here was the argument he made. This Melchizedek guy, he was awesome. He was a priest and king, and that's weird. You're not supposed to be a priest and king. There's the priests, and they do the work to represent the people to God, but the priest can walk out of the temple and look up, and there's a palace, and there's a king over there, and the king represents God to the people, but never the two shall meet, but Melchizedek, man, he was different. He was both a priest and a king, which made him better than Abraham, your patriarch, but get this, here's his argument, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. So if Jesus is better than Melchizedek, he's better than Abraham, he's better than everybody, and this Jesus, he's unique. He's a better priest, and his argument in chapter 7 was, he's better because Jesus serves forever where the priest would die. Jesus completes the work for all time, not having to go back yearly. And the sacrifice he brought was better than bulls and goats and lambs. Instead, Jesus brought himself. That was the argument he just made. And he will finish making that argument here in the first four verses. So that's your review. We're arguing Jesus is better today, better than anything else you could follow after, better than any other way of redemption. And you just heard in chapter 7, if you were reading this live, I mean, he is the better high priest, the best of all high priests. Now, here's your preview. It's coming in three sections today, three sections. One, we're going to see very briefly in verses 1 through 4 that he's the better high priest. Because that has been a theme throughout the series, I don't want to just keep going over it. We're going to briefly talk about how he's the best high, best high, excuse me, the better high priest. I need you to get the significance of that, though. The original reader, they look at that idea, the priest, they're a big fan of their priest. The priest is how I'm made right with God. If I'm concerned as an Old Testament Jew, I want to be right with God, I need that priest right there because I can't do it by myself. i got to bring him a sacrifice who will take it on my behalf. I love my priest. So, man, Jesus is better than the priest that made me, that did the work to make me right with God? Well, that's, that's significant if Jesus is better than that priest who made me right with God. Then number two, we're going to see a better place. There's the better priest, there's the better place. We're going to have an argument here that 
the most significant building in their life, the temple and the tabernacle that prefigured it, man, that place meant so much to them. When they were in the wilderness, they could look at the tabernacle and go, we're okay. God's with us. He's in there. So whatever else happens around here, I'm, I, can go, I can go there. I can look at that tabernacle and know God's with us. And when I'm now in Jerusalem and that tabernacle, that tent that they kept moving around is now a temple, they could walk out of their house at any time and go, there's the temple. God's with us. He, he's there. He's literally in there. His presence is in there in the Holy of Holies. We're okay. I've got safety because of that place. And I, even, I just know who I am because of that place. It makes me... It's the uh, if sojourners came through and they see our temple or our tabernacle, they know who we are because of who our God is. It's where I find safety and identity. And so, for this writer to say, Hey, Jesus is better than that temple, whoa, that's a big claim you're making. He's better than the priest that made me right with God, he's better than the building that gives me an identity and safety. How can he be better than that? And then, maybe the the one we'll spend the most time on today not a better priest in a better place, but then Jesus makes a better promise. We saw last week. The covenant of God is good. The promises of God are good. And you can count on those because your anchor is, with, is, is in the heavenlies. You can count on God's promises. But man, the promises Jesus makes are even better than the old promises. The better covenant yeah. is now. That's the one we'll spend the most time on. So those are three things. Better priest, better place, better promise. Let's go. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll read the first four verses again. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That's very nice of them to give us the point so clearly. We have such a high priest, the high priest that we just read about in chapter 7. We have a high priest like that. He's one who is seated at the right hand at the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So they're there to offer sacrifices for sin. Thus it is necessary for this priest, the normal priest on earth, they have to have something to offer for themselves. I have to offer... Uh, sacrifice for my sins before I can represent you, the old priest had to do. In contrast, verse 4, not, excuse me, not in contrast, continuing in verse 4. Now, if Jesus were on earth, Jesus would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Let's break that down. A couple things I want to highlight for you with this theme. Jesus is a better priest than they had. Here's some things that made him a better priest. One, he's seated at the right hand of, uh, of the throne of majesty in heaven. That indicates this. The work is done. This priest got his work done. In the old tabernacle, in the old temple, when you go into the Holy of Holies where God is, there's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere to hang out. You don't hang out in there. It's a fearful place to be. That priest got in, did his work, sprinkled the blood for the forgiveness of sins, and he got out of there because that's a fearful place to be. Not this Jesus. He's better than that priest. He can just go in there and hang out. He can go and be with the presence of God. He's seated because he's so holy. He's done all the righteous work. He's seated and his work is finished. Second, he is seated at the right of the throne and majesty. So while he is priest and he's done all the good work, he's also king. He's in the presence of majesty. He is majesty himself. Three, he's doing it in the heavens. And really, it says in heaven here, but it means in the heavenlies or in heavens. So then, this priest, Jesus, is different than these old priests because the priests just acted in Jerusalem for that people. If he's doing this work that the priest did in the heavens, his people must be different. He's not just doing it for one geographic location. He's doing it for all of his people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he's seated. The work is done. He's also king in majesty. He's doing it in the heavens so that there can be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then the one I want to pause on for a second. He's in the true tent. He's doing it in the true tent. That tent word, 
That's the old word for tabernacle. So if you don't remember, before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle. It was a magnificent tent, magnificent structure that God instructed, but it was a mobile temple. Wherever Israel went when they were wandering around, they could set up their tabernacle and the presence of God would be with them. You can read about that in Exodus 27 if you want. So it's an odd thing for him to say, Jesus, better than the, these normal priests, he's doing his work in the true tent. So the original reader has to go, hold on. So I've, I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the temple that used to be the tabernacle. You're telling me that's not the true one? This thing that gives me all of this, all this identity and safety and meaning, whatever's happening in there, that's not the true thing? The Where's the true one happening? Apparently the true version wasn't, one, wasn't the tabernacle that Moses built. Apparently the true version isn't the temple that Solomon built. Apparently the true version is the one in the heavenlies where the true priest, Jesus, is doing the work for the redemption of sin. And what we had down here on earth, we'll see in a minute, just a copy. The true tent is in the heavenlies. And the final thing I want you to know here on Jesus being a better priest is that it's, it says here, on earth, Jesus would not be a priest. Why? Because according to the law, it had to be someone from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was the tribe of Judah. So we just learned in chapter 7, I'll take you back to June. He asked the question, so wait, wait, wait. So Jesus is in the wrong line. Why does he get to break the rules? Why does Jesus get to be the priest if he's in the wrong line? And the argument in chapter 7 was he, gets, he got to do so by the power of his indestructible life. Because he conquered death, there's no one challenging his qualifications. So Jesus is this much better priest in all those ways. His work is finished. He's in the heavenlies, the true tent, doing work for all of his people. And his qualifications weren't bloodline. His qualifications were being triumphant over death. Excuse me, triumphant over death. So he is no longer uh, the shadow. He is the, the substance of, this, uh, of the better priesthood. Right, so I wanted to go fast on that one for a reason. We've been through that one uh, actually several times in this book. So number one, Jesus, better priest than they ever had. Verse five will tell us about the better place. I've got to tell you about this pronoun first, though. Uh, chapter five opens with the word they. Certainly, that pronoun includes the temple. It includes the tabernacle where God was. It includes the sacrifices made there. It includes the priesthood. I would argue that this they includes all of the Old Covenant, the feasts and the holidays, that we can import everything God gave in that covenant to this pronoun, they. So verse 5, the better place. 5, they. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, Moses was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. So what we're getting an argument here from this writer is saying, hey, if you'll go back, if you'll read your Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you'll go back and read, you'll see that those were always a copy. Those were always a shadow. You should have known. You should have known something was better. Well, why? Why should I have known that something better was coming than what we had? Well, because it, he even says there, and he's, he's quoting it from Exodus 25, when you make all this stuff, Moses, make it according to the pattern. So if there's a pattern, something must already exist. And whatever I'm building, whatever we're making down here, it's supposed to be pointing me somewhere else. They were always a copy. They were always a shadow. One of my favorite bands from my youth, apparently they're still around. Switchfoot was one of my favorite bands uh, when, I was, when I was young. 
they had a, they had a song called "The Shadow Proves the Sunshine," and their their concept was when you're in the shadow, when you're in the darkness, that this tells you where well, there is light. There's light somewhere to go find. I think we can use that concept here, knowing whatever the patterns were—the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices—that tells us there's something, some light shining on something. And that light shining on something is giving us these shadows. I mean, I don't want to just see the shadows. I want to see the real thing. I want the better thing, the real thing. Because if I'm dealing with a temple and sacrifices and priests, I'm dealing with good stuff. Those are good shadows and good copies. But I'm ready for the real thing. And if, I think there's an argument here to the Old Testament reader, or the, the Jew in the Old Covenant. Go back and read, and you'll see everything was always a copy. Everything was always a shadow. I, I think you would know that from your life. The original is always better than the copy. And... A previous time in my job, maybe you remember this, I traveled all the time, six, seven, eight weeks out of the year. I was living in hotel rooms. And I recall from time to time, I'd go into a hotel room who the art on the wall wasn't that just really bland art that you, you know, they bought in mass and put in every room. They would put up a fake Mona Lisa, or they put up a fake you know, famous painting. And as someone, the Lord's been good, I've been able to see a lot of those paintings uh, and travel. And just knowing that that thing on my Holiday Inn Express wall that's not as good. That's not as good as the real one. The real one is always better. And so this pattern that, uh, that Moses used was a pattern of something better that we should long for. So that, uh, that pattern that we see in Exodus 25, that's the, the throne of God. The heavenlies is what the tabernacle and the temple were built after. So there, let me, uh, yeah, there's, found my point. Therefore, your place, them in us, our place to meet with God, the place where we can find that, that safety and an identity, is therefore not a building in Jerusalem that's already been taken down now. It's not even necessarily exclusively in here as you meet together, as we meet with the Lord here. Your true place, your better place, as we saw last week, is anchored in heaven. It's anchored with God. Your place is that now God goes with you everywhere you go. That the temple of God goes with you. So you have been given a better place. It's not one building where God's presence is that you've got to travel to. God's presence is with you. That's a better place than we had before. Now, this last one here is the one where I want to spend, actually, most of our time today. That Jesus is a better priest. He provides a better place. And then the rest of this chapter is the better promise. I want to say this first. In about 25 minutes from now, we're going to do what we do every week. And... These young men are going to hand out the elements, and we're going to come around the table of the Lord, and I'm sure that what we'll read is Jesus saying this the night when he was betrayed before his crucifixion. He will say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're about to see here in Hebrews what we talk about every week in the new covenant. What's this new covenant we're in? How's it different from the old covenant? Starting here in verse 6 then, we will learn about the better promise that Jesus has made to us. Verse 6. But as it is, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old ministry, the one the, the old priest did. Why? Because the covenant he mediates is better. Since this covenant, this new covenant, is enacted on better promises than the old ones. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. We'll pause there briefly. So these, Jesus is now doing a more excellent ministry. His ministry is better than the old priests and the old sacrifices. And this ministry he's doing that's better than the old priests and old sacrifices 
it has won for us, secured for us, a better covenant with better promises. That will, admittedly, when I, when I first read that, it doesn't hit me right. Because there's something about an omnipotent, all-powerful God saying he made some, some promises and some covenant, but then he made some even better ones. And while it hits me odd, that is what the text says. That the new covenant that Jesus won for me, it's, it's the real one. That the first covenant was shadow and copy of what was to come. So the first covenant then, where we find here, it had some faults. Well, what were they? Because it says here, for that first covenant had been faultless. See, meaning, it, it had some faults, but what were they? Let's take a look. He answers that in verses 8 and 9. Again, he's quoting here from Jeremiah 31. We will learn what was the fault in the first covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I so, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So it is in these two verses from Jeremiah 31, we see what the fault was in the first covenant. The fault was with them, not it. The covenant and the laws were good. But they, the generation coming out of Egypt, the generations that followed who were faithless, the ones that rejected God, they were the fault in the first covenant. God's terms and His commands, His promises, they were good. The people were faulty. And if you know their story, if you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see they were offered all the good things we were offered. They were offered forgiveness of sins. They were offered a call to trust in a God who obviously was providing for them. They were offered a loving relationship with their God. And what I find is two categories. They just continue to reject God. Sometimes they rejected him out of hard-heartedness, and they just chose their own way. They chose sin, and they chose debauchery. They chose to reject God and chase their flesh. And then when they didn't do that, I'll read in some of the minor prophets, that instead of choosing sin, they just chose the rituals. They chose the looking good outwardly. They would go and do their sacrifices. They would go through the motions, but their hearts were far from God. But that problem was not God's covenant. It was through their pursuit of sin or their pursuit of just feeling good with their rituals that they failed the covenant. They rejected the covenant. The flaw of the old covenant was, was Israel's flaw, not God's. So then, this last, these last four verses, my favorite part of today. So why is this one better then? If, if the fault was with Israel, why is this new covenant better? Let's do the first uh, verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So here's the new covenant, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord. Well, why won't they teach that anymore? They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is really good news of our new covenant. Three things I notice about it. One, one, God's law will now be on our minds and our hearts. It tells me in this new covenant, because the fault was in the was Israel, how will the fault not be with me this time? Well, because he gave me a new nature. It's not an external 
control of the law, but instead an internal joy of knowing God's ways. The locus of control now is not an external wall telling me what I should be doing. It's now the joy of obedience through the Holy Spirit helping me to know right from wrong and helping me to know right from almost right. I don't have an external locus of control. I have an internal locus of control because God is with me. He's giving me counsel all the time. And if I, we'll talk about it more next week because next week is largely about the conscience. If I don't deaden my conscience or if I don't drown out my conscience by just constantly scrolling and watching and constantly having noise on, if I will let my conscience, informed by the Holy Spirit, tell me, I'll know where to go. I'll know what to do. I won't have to always go to the external law. It'll be in me, the Holy Spirit will inform me. I've tried to, illust- tried to think of an illustration for this, and this is what I came up with. When you are in a new city, you're on vacation, you go to a new place, you have to follow the GPS. You don't know where you are. You need instructions. You need something outside of you to tell you which way to go. You get a new job somewhere. It's a gigantic campus where you're working. You don't know how to get where you need to go. You need someone to tell you the way to go. You need something external to direct you. But after enough time, you know where to go. You know where everything is. And what you have now, this covenant you have is better because you don't need the external control. You just know because the Lord is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you and you can cultivate that. And if you don't deaden that, if you don't quiet that, you'll know right from wrong. And you'll actually find, get this, joy. Instead of, instead of a law written on stone tablets, the law is now written on your heart and in your mind. That is so much better than, an old, than the old covenant. You get that new nature. So I, we see that it's better because God's law is written in our minds and hearts too. You will see that God's ownership is complete. From the least to the greatest, all of God's people have now come together. He owns totally his people. And then third, there's one more way here I think that this covenant is better, or this part of the covenant is better, is now this covenant is intimate and personal. Let me take you back again to... The old covenant, if you're just a rank-and-file, normal Jew living in Jerusalem. I'm living in Jerusalem. I can go see the temple. So God's in there. He's in the Holy of Holies. And I can't get to him. I don't have direct access to him. I actually have to go to a high priest and ask him to get access for me. And even that high priest who gets me access, I don't really know him. I, I mean, I might... But he's, he's, a, he's just one guy. There's only so much capacity he has for relationships. It's almost like uh, Shekai and I went to see uh, John Chris a couple years ago, and we got to go backstage and meet him for a few minutes. But we're not buds. We're not friends. If we saw each other out in public, he wouldn't know who I was. It's not that it wasn't a close relationship. But that's not what you've got. You don't have a mediated relationship where you need a priest to go through to get to God. This covenant is better because your relationship with God is now intimate and personal. And this is in part what we're celebrating at Christmas. The shadows are gone. The temple and the priest and the sacrifices are gone. Are gone. The real has come. Jesus has come. And he has won for us that kind of access. So this covenant we have, the new covenant is better because the law of God's on your heart and your mind. It's complete. God owns his people. We will be his people. He will be our God. And you have an intimate and personal access to God now in this new covenant. And then we'll finish with verses 12 and 13. For I will be, oh, this is good news. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first covenant obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we, hear, we find out here in this new covenant, despite our failings, despite our sins, our God will have a willing forgetfulness for our sins. Our covenant is now intimate. There's unity. There's community. We actually can be in the presence of God as he willingly forgets our sins. Yeah. Now, I want to make an important point here. That's very good news. And I don't want us to lose the cost of it. The cost of having that intimate personal relationship that we can have with God now. Here's what I fear. I fear that we see the old covenant as, as bloody. There is to win approval with God, to get back into a good relationship with God. The old covenant was bloody and had had to sacrifice a ram or a goat or you, you bring some kind of sacrifice. In this new covenant, man, it's just God being more loving than he's ever been and he's so affirming that somehow God lowered the standard for the second covenant. This new covenant lowered the standard of what he demands from us. And I don't want to trifle with that. I don't want to trifle with a bipolar God that had this harsh, austere old covenant and then this just new affirming and loving new covenant. That's not what we're reading here at all. The God who demanded blood for sin, demanded blood for the payment of sin in the Old Testament, demands blood for the payment of sin in this new covenant as well. Instead of us bringing to the temple bloods, excuse me, goats and bulls, instead, that blood, it's Jesus paying it himself. This new covenant didn't cost less. It cost more. It is eternally costly. It cost God put on flesh his sacrifice of his body to win us access to God. I don't ever want us to, to, to lose the cost of it. I fear we do. I, I'm always trying to think of ways to illustrate this to you. I thought about the old covenant. A man and a wife taking his kids to the temple, and they offer over this lamb and having to explain it to their kids. They probably didn't love that lamb like we love our animals, like our pets, but that... That animal was part of the family, part of the resources. It was, an, it was an animal that you actually had to put your eyes on and your hands on. Like This was an animal that was part of their, their life. And I imagine them walking away and having their kids ask, Wait, why does an animal have to die? I don't want the blood shed of this animal. Why, why, does this have, why does this animal have to die? Blood is the cost of sin. Blood is the cost of your jealousy and backbiting. Blood is the cost of your rumor-mongering and gossip. Blood is the cost of you getting in to sexual temptation. Blood must be spilt for sin. And I imagine the somberness of having to walk home knowing we just had to leave that animal to die for our sins. I don't want to sin anymore. My relationship to my sin is sorrow because of what's having to happen right now in that temple. Guys, don't let it be that the much more serious sacrifice, God himself, Jesus himself, and then we just go on and kind of forget about it? That's right. we, because we don't have to physically bring an animal anymore, we don't get the cost of our sin. Yeah. Jesus had to bleed, had to lose his life for our sin. So I, I just, I want to fix this. If we think of the Old Testament as bloody, and, or Old Covenant as bloody and grimy and harsh, don't forget your new covenant costs much more. It was, a, it was a cosmic cost to get this new covenant. The last uh, two more points about this, this new covenant we're in. Several commentators 
that I read on this passage. They called it the end of religion, that Jesus brought an end to religion. I don't want that to be your impression of the new covenant, that the old covenant was highly structured and had temple and sacrifice and feasts and holidays and, and, and the priest. And this new one is just free and free-wielding and, and clear. I, I don't like the formulation that Jesus ended religion. He didn't end religion. He did change it. It's now a fundamentally different faith from what, from what the Jews practiced. This is where I think that phrase we all grew up with that I am about to call out and I'm going to critique. We all grew up with the phrase, Jesus is about relationship, not religion. Christianity is relationship, not religion. Can I push on that a little bit? It's important that you know where you live in historic Christian context. Here's where, where that originated. Four years in the American church, I think a lot of us grew up at the very tail end of a really legalistic faith where the outward appearance was very important. All the things we didn't do, the movies we didn't watch, the places we didn't go, the things that we, that we didn't do defined us. And there was some good in that. There was some seriousness about holiness, but there was also just some show you put on. It wasn't deep in the heart, and everything was about externals and not the internal. But as the human heart does, pendulums swing. People are bad at balance. And so the pendulum swung. We were so mad at the legalists that for the last, I don't know, my lifetime, the 90s, the early 2000s, we have been saying, do away with legalism. God did away with the rules, and you can just live however you want. It was hyper-grace. It was licentious. We overcorrected too much, and we act like God doesn't have standards, that we don't have to obey God anymore. So instead of being legalists and then are being licentious where we all do whatever we want, here's the truth. God, Jesus didn't come and do away with religion just so he can have a sloppy relationship with you. He came and changed religion so that now the covenant is better. That the law is now in your heart and mind. For that, I thought about it this way. That in the old covenant, I might look at the law and want to, and I'll follow it because I'm supposed to, but maybe the heart didn't want to. I don't want to follow that law, but I'm going to follow it because God made it for me. Now we don't have to be like that. I can look at the law of God in my instincts because I'm new. I can look at the law and go, I want to do that. I want to, I want to be faithful to my wife. I want to be careful about what I listen to and what I watch. I want to be careful about how the world affects me. Why? Because I, I love this law. I, I love this covenant. I don't have to look at it and it be oppressive to me. I can now look at it and go, that's good. That's the way to life. This covenant's way better in that way. I have a new religion. That new religion causes me to love the law. And it, then it doesn't change the expectation. The expectation of the old law was follow the law, follow the covenants. We don't have a new expectation now where you do whatever you want. We just have a new orientation. The expectation is the same, but now we are oriented to, to want to follow God's law, to know God's thinking. We still have prescriptions on how we worship God, what we do in here, that we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is still religious. He's still The Lord still has structures and strictures on our lives. So I don't want you to have this dichotomy where the old covenant was harsh and austere and bloody and the new covenant is freewheeling. No, it's not. It costs a lot and it has its own structures and it still has expectations for you to obey it. You just have a new orientation in your heart that makes it a joy to obey this good God. Final thing on this text. And now I have three application points for you. That old covenant, he just told us, is vanishing away. He said it's, it's coming to a close. The old covenant is vanishing away. I can tell you now in 2023, it's gone. Because what he was just pointing to, the priests, the temples, the sacrifices, it wasn't too many decades after he wrote this 
that the Romans came in and destroyed that temple. And the priesthood was no longer around. And they weren't practicing sacrifices anymore. This is word of prophecy here. He said that old covenant, it's vanishing away. And now we know it is gone. You're, the old covenant's gone. That building's gone. The priests are gone. What we have is, is way better. What Jesus gave us is better than what was there. And I want to caution you, caution you with that word for this reason. Here I am. I tell people all the time, you know, take in spiritual content. That's what you, what you need is read your Bibles, prayer, and fill your mind with more spiritual things than, uh, than worldly things. And I said that to someone at work who about a month ago who comes back to me, and here's what's happened. He has started taking in biblical things, but now the algorithms on his social media, because his phone knows everything about him, it's now giving him all these other Christian content on his phone. And some of it is garbage. Some of it's really, really stupid stuff. For example, he comes to me with excitement that, did you know? That there are Jews right now in Jerusalem that have basically pre-built the temple, and if ever they can get back on the Temple Mount, they're so like they're ready to build it right now, and they've made all the garments for the priests, and they can go and they can start they can start sacrificing again. Yeah, I'm aware that those that those people are ready to do it, and that's not anything we want. We don't want that. Amen. I don't want to. Why would I want a temple? God's in me. Why would I want sacrifices on an altar? Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. Why do I want priests again? I got the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I don't want that temple back. I don't want that altar back. And so as you interact with those things, if your social media feed starts telling you that, we're, that Christians are wanting to rebuild the temple and have sacrifices again, no, we don't. We don't want that. I got something way better than that old covenant. It was vanishing away, and now it's gone. So Jesus, he's a better priest who gave you a better place and then better promises in this new covenant. Here's all I want to do to finish here in our last 10 minutes or so. I usually, in our application section, admittedly, I kind of lecture at you. More today, I want to ask you some questions. And I'm asking you today to test your own heart, but not just today. I'd even encourage you maybe write down these questions. Sometime this week, in discipline, put your phone down. Stop scrolling. Think through these questions that I'm about to give you. It's in the three categories you talked about, priest, place, and promise. So here's this first question. What are your priests? The, maybe better asked, where do you go to be granted acceptance? For the original reader, they went to the priest to be told, you're good. You're good now. You gave me the sacrifice. I'll take it to God. You're good. You can, you, you can go and you've been reconciled. I want to ask you, are you going somewhere else to be told, you're good, you're fine, you're, you're okay now? I've challenged you like this before, but for some of you, you might go to Jesus to be told you're okay, you've gone to the better high priest, but there are some voices or some people in your life that if they don't affirm you, then Jesus' affirmation doesn't do enough for you. You don't get the affirmation of a parent. I know those are deep wounds. And when you don't have your parents telling you you're awesome, the Jesus affirmation isn't enough for you. For some of you, it's a certain amount of money you need to make, or it's a boss's approval. It's a title that you really want at work that you're not getting. And so when you don't, you're go when you don't get those things, Jesus' affirmation as a priest isn't enough for you. You're looking to another priest to affirm, you're okay, you're fine. For some of you, it's a spouse, it's some romantic interest you have. You are going to some other priest and asking, Am I okay? Will you affirm me? Will you tell me that I've achieved enough? I, that's, a, 
That's a burden I don't want for you. Some of you, uh, you young, you young folks, you're ambitious, and I love that about you, man. If we could replicate some ambitious young people who want to go after life, but I also don't want you on this really destructive path that I've been on when I was your age, where I'm just looking for everyone's approval, not even any particular person's. I'm literally just going about my business, trying to do everything with excellence, so everyone says Corey's great. That's heavy, guys. I don't need that. I, I, I now. If I can have Jesus' affirmation as my high priest, him declaring me righteous, if I lose your approval, I'm okay. I don't want to lose your approval. I want to be, in, be honorable. But if I lose someone else's approval, I'm okay because I got Jesus' affirmation. So that's the question I want you to ask. Where, what are my priests? Where do I go for affirmation? And if I lose that affirmation, that Jesus' affirmation is not going to be enough. Whose acceptance or rejection shapes you? Whose acceptance or rejection forms you? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. What are your priests? Two, what are your places? Remember for the original reader, that temple, and it meant safety. We got that temple, we got God with us, we're safe. We got that temple, as, as strangers come through, that tells people who, who I am. I got identity in that place, that temple. So just the question I have for you, where do you go to feel safe? And if you lost it, would Jesus be enough to keep you feeling safe? Some of the places you run are good. It's good to run to your family or your your spouse and feel safe. It's good to run to some things to feel safety, but everything is fading. Everything is losable. The question here being, if you lost this, Would you feel disaster or would Jesus be enough to make you feel safe and give you identity? There are some things you run to. You run to status in this world. We run often to our our country's identity, your education level, maybe how you parent. You feel pretty good about the way you parent. You have some kind of identity with that, a certain amount of wealth you've got. Some of those things aren't bad. But what I'm asking you today is to ask yourself, if I lost these things... Would Jesus be enough? Or do I still run to those? Am I going to those places instead of Jesus alone? So what are your priests? What are your places? And then finally, what are your promises? This covenant, the old one and the new one, it comes in some ways with some promise. If you will follow God's ways, to that way is light and life. If you'll go God's ways, light and life are where you are, are where you will end. The Proverbs give us a lot of that. The, the, the wise person who's following God's ways, it ends well for him. But you might be telling yourselves some false promises. You are the law of God is trying to write on your heart a better way, and you are rejecting God's law and, and God's promise and writing yourself a better promise, or what you think is better. You are telling yourself. Young people, listen to me, because I know where we, I know when we are and where what you're coming up on. The law of God, the promise of God, is you need a godly spouse. That should be your top priority, and that way, godly spouse is the way to light in life. And then you will promise yourself, uh-uh, this this godless person, this this person who I am prohibited for, to to pursue, to that way is light in life. And I promise myself that's the better way. And you're violating God's promise to you. And I will just tell you, if you're you're telling yourself that promise, that will lead to darkness and death, not light and life. For some of you, you you tell yourself this promise. If I can can just have an easy life, just away from 
I'm having to strive. I just I promise myself, if I can just have an easy life, it'll be a good life. That's a false promise. God's promise is go after it and I will be with you. Go conquer the land as, as, as Pastor Doug's been preaching through in Joshua. Make your marriage the best it can be. Parent intentionally. Manage your household and finances intentionally. That will cause you to have to do uncomfortable things and tell yourself no sometimes and get up and work. You'll have to do it. That's the better promise. God promises he'll be with you in that and that will lead to light and life. But man, if you've told yourself the promise that just ease of life and comfort and indulgence is the way to light and life, you're actually going towards the past to darkness and death. You will tell yourself the promise that acceptance by this world, worldliness, being approved by, the, by worldliness, that's the way to light and life. I, I need that, their approval. That's genuinely the, the path to darkness and death. The promise of God is to go after his ways and it is that way to light and life. So I'm just asking you to challenge yourself this week. What are my priests? Where do I go to be told I'm okay? What are my places? Where do I go to feel safe? And do I go to this more than Jesus? What promises am I telling myself that violate the law of God written on my heart? What law is God trying to write on your heart right now that you're even rejecting because you have told yourself another promise? I'm going to pray for us, but let me just summarize for I do. I know I just challenged you with some things, but this is ultimately an encouraging passage. Jesus is a better priest who gives you a better place, and he's made for you even better promises. So trust him, pursue him, renounce all other priests and places and promises, and follow after Christ alone. It is that way to light and to life and encouragement. Let me pray for us.